Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome to the Media Podcast. I'm Jake Cantor. On the show today, hundreds of jobs go as the BBC's World Service shrinks. Tony Gallagher is named editor of The Times, replacing John Witherow. Plus, broadcasters are set to be restricted in how much footage they can show of Queen Elizabeth's funeral. And it's a Media Quiz International Podcast Day special. We're hunting down exciting new shows announced just this week. That's all coming up on this edition of the Media Podcast. In the news this week, the fourth anniversary of journalist Jamal Khashoggi's murder sparked reflection on the ongoing issue of press freedom. David Ignatius at The Washington Post wrote... Jamal would be the first to tell us that press freedom is a global problem and that truth tellers everywhere need our support. Meanwhile, across the Atlantic, Trevor Noah has announced he will depart Paramount's The Daily Show. After seven years hosting and roasting US politicians, the comedian has said he wants to dedicate more time to stand-up comedy. In other news, Sky has signalled the end of a technological era, switching from satellite dishes to streaming boxes. Sky will launch its Sky Stream product in October for £26 a month, including a Netflix subscription. And in the world of journalism, the Daily Mail and Mail Online have announced a new collaborative relationship aimed at ending story duplication and allowing journalists to focus on original content. But on today's show, we're deep diving into two stories reshaping the UK media landscape. Here to help are three excellent media experts, First up, it's Janine Gibson, Head of Digital Platforms and Projects at the Financial Times. Welcome, Janine. I'm extremely excited. Thank you for having me on. Tell us a bit about your role at the FT. Well, I mean, my title sounds slightly like I'm in charge of um, scheduling and platforms, but I mainly sort of try and worry about what things look like for our users, make better forms of digital journalism. Like we just did a, a fantastic interactive this week about the last conflict in Ukraine, which is a wonderful piece of visual journalism that we couldn't have done a year ago. And um, recently we've launched a lovely app called The Edit, which is available at a low, low cost for people to sample FT journalism. There, that's my plugs. That's what you wanted, right? (laughs) Also with us is The Guardian's media editor, Jim Waterson. Welcome back to the show. Uh, hello. Jim, what have you been up to? What's the gossip? Uh, what's the gossip? If I told you the gossip of The Guardian, I wouldn't be ever allowed on this podcast ever again. But if I... Uh, it, 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 well, I, I'm more excited to... Now you're freed from the shackles of The Times to get on to discussing what's going on there, Jake. <laughs> and finally, it's Stephen D. Wright, uh, TV producer extraordinaire. 
Uh, welcome back, Stephen, a man of exceptional TV taste. Uh, tell us what you're watching at the moment. Anything but the news, basically. I can't stand anything that's uh, politics and current affairs at the moment. It's so grim. But no, uh, I'm doing all the usual, you know, um, the Lord of the Rings reboot and the Game of the Thrones reboot and all that. Does that mean this England is out? I, I watched 20 minutes of it and I had to stop. I haven't, I haven't deleted it yet, but I'm not particularly excited by it. It's, uh, it's a bit too grim to watch at the moment. The timing on that just feels all wrong, that people wanted that maybe when it was uh, a Boris prime ministership or they wanted it well after the event. But now it just feels very, very weird to release it now. Weird is the word, yeah. OK, let's dive into our first story. Uh, the BBC World Service has announced cutbacks that will result in the loss of 328 jobs. The BBC is blaming the below inflation licence fee freeze imposed by the government in January, but said it was also part of a wider strategy to make services digital first. Janine, this is probably one of Deborah Turner's first big decisions as the chief executive of News. Uh, what do you make of it? Well, um, technically, yes, because she has just joined. Although, as far as I can see, the first week was all um, Queen death. And it seems unlikely she's had a lot of time to deep dive into the detail of the uh, World Service funding, which I don't know, I seen, I studied it for about 15 years, and I'm still confused. What I can't quite work out from this, and Jim will know because he's been doing reporting, but I, what I can't quite work out is, it seems like from the moment that um, Osborne changed, that George Osborne changed the funding and it stopped being directly funded by the Foreign Office, effectively, the writing was on the wall. Because how can, it, it's, not, it's not a service for UK licence fee payers. It's never going to pass the bar for funding from the 150 quid we spend each year because it's not for us. It is a piece of soft diplomacy. The fact it is the BBC World Service is simply a production contract, it's of use to the government, the diplomatic service, foreign office and so on. So it's a very strange uh, thing to ask EG Deborah Turnus to work out what its priorities should be. In very broad terms, until, until a decision made in 2010, the World Service was sort of, and we'll, we'll go over the details, but very roughly funded by the government from the foreign office as soft power. Then they said, BBC, suck it up, austerity, deal with it yourself. And then in about 2016, the BBC said, look, you really need to give us some money. So it's now mainly licence fee funded with some ongoing sort of midterm grants from the government to top it up a bit and do certain services. But basically, the BBC said inflation is out of control. Can you, can you describe a pie chart of how much of the World Service funding is from the Foreign Office? I think I could, actually. I think, <laughs> about, I th I think, I think I probably could. It would be, it would be about... It would be when you take a pork pie, but it's a medium one, so you do it into six rather than eights, and I think it's roughly a six. Yeah. What does this say about the future of the World Service? I mean, is this the, the sort of the, the beginning of extinction for the World Service? It's the beginning of the end for the World Service as we know it, with the sort of idea of people tuning in on shortwave radios all over the world, listening to the news from London. The optimistic case, and maybe the realistic one, is that shutting down radio services in a world where much younger audiences uh, around the world uh, than in the UK and they tend to use the internet and their phones rather than radio sets is uh, a sort of, uh, you know, the optimistic case is you can serve them online anyway. But if you're giving up your sort of privileged access direct to consumer, if you've got CGTN from China and you've got Al Jazeera and you've got RT 
all sort of expanding in these countries as well, basically Britain ceding the territory in the broadcast sphere. There's one other, there is one worrying thing, which is shifting services to internet only, especially when you're talking about places such as China. I think China was one of the ones that was mentioned as going digital only. You know, we, China's already demonstrated with extraordinary ability how, how quickly it can control the internet and shut things down and remove things it doesn't like. So there's just a tiny thing to watch there around the availability of services in there, in regions where perhaps they're most needed. Yeah, absolutely. And um, look, I mean, the government gave the BBC £4.1 million worth of emergency funding for reporting on the war in Ukraine. So it's clearly still valued by ministers, isn't it? Isn't it pathetic, though, that the, the BBC has to go four million quid, which in the scale of the media isn't that much money? Please, government, please, we definitely need four million quid or else we're going to sort of have serious trouble keeping on top of this. The sums that are involved in these cuts aren't enormous. They're sort of 20 or 30 million uh, for all of these hundreds of job losses. Um, you know, they aren't the biggest sums that are being removed, but with quite an enormous impact on services it's brinkmanship though isn't it that that they shouldn't be they shouldn't pay for it from the license fee the government wants these services to exist and they should be funding them this the original sin is the george osborne funding change i mean look clearly the bbc is having to make some very difficult decisions and it feels like the world service uh could be an area where they can make cuts without impacting uk audiences particularly and that might actually you know, work well for it as a, as a strategy going forward. I mean, look, these are not going to impact UK audiences. Do you, do you have any affection for the World Service, Stephen? Only in a sort of, I like what it stands for, and it's part of the BBC's history and cultural value. But, um, but as Janine says, from a UK perspective, it's sort of slightly meaningless. But it's much more sort of insidious of, of a way of breaking up the BBC and making it sort of just another broadcaster. The money, as Jim said, is, is basically nothing. You know, this is like the, the salary of Jonathan Ross, you know, a few years ago. That's all we're talking about. And we're getting rid of a massive diplomatic cultural force for good. And that's where it is sad. I mean, you know, it doesn't personally affect me, but it personally affects the BBC. And that will eventually affect all British people. Yeah, I remember a journalist of the BBC World Service memory described it to me as uh, being like a very old grandpa who sits in the corner of the room has had a fantastic life and is enormously well respected but everyone secretly wishes that they would uh, and this was his words piss off to a care home yeah that's it that's it in a nutshell <laughs> <laughs> and that that soft You're pouting is i mean people. <laughs> no, well he worked he worked for the world service so you know <laughs> talking about his own his own employer um but uh, i mean that soft power thing is do we think that's increasingly I mean look this is a this is probably a tired question but do we think that's increasingly important as Britain has left the EU we'll be a third world country ourselves where's the other world service that we need you know I mean this is the thing now we've, we've lost we're losing everything that that we once stood for and you know maybe this is progress or maybe it's the in- inevitable decline of the British sort of cultural uh, you know force or whatever yeah Let's move on to our second story, uh, which is a major change in the UK's editorial landscape. John Witherow this week stepped down as editor of The Times after almost a decade. Uh, Witherow's deputy, Tony Gallagher, the former Sun and Daily Telegraph editor, has been confirmed as his replacement. Jim, you've been uh, picking over these rumours for a couple of weeks. Tell us what's happened. Well, uh, Tony Gallagher, who has been running the paper de facto for most of the year while John Witherow has been on leave, has finally been confirmed as actually uh, having the job full time. 
the staff I've spoken to, um, and it feels slightly surreal talking to yourself about this, obviously, but the staff I've spoken to have been slightly concerned about where the paper's editorial line are going. And there's also the sort of strange game the Times might have to play with its politics if many of its readers start to drift towards wanting a Labour government. It has obviously in the past under Murdoch backed New Labour and how it sort of threads that with its more culture war-y stories that it's been running in recent years. So there's a sort of, and questions also about whether Tony Gallagher is the man to do the digital transformation that everyone agrees is needed, but no one ever quite wants to do. Well, the Times the times have probably argued that the digital strategy is working. Well, they've got a lot of money coming in, yeah. But I think there's further to go. And you've got, how do you get more new customers on uh, through a paywall that doesn't really offer you much of a chance to sample the product before you you dive in? Obviously, they've gone down one route. You can't read anything on The Times, really, without uh, without coughing up. And The Guardian's gone down another route where we ask you to cough up after you've enjoyed the product. So it's a, it's a different model, and we'll work out who... Who wins in the end? But Tony is obviously, you know, Tony has uh, his his fans and his detractors in the industry. Janine, have you ever encountered Tony? Not not extensively. I'm pretty sure he um uh, shouted at me once about a piece that he didn't like. But I mean, if if we were to exclude all editors of national newspapers on those grounds, Jake, lol. Um, he's he's got a fearsome uh, reputation. But then you know, so did Witherow. The most interesting thing about this handover is that it's been rumoured for months, which is quite rare in the Murdoch world. He tends to act swiftly and, uh, and people have disappeared and then uh, and replaced and you don't really get much sense of it but being about to happen. Because John Witherow hasn't been very well, this has been rumoured um, uh, for months. Tony has been in charge for some time, hasn't he? And we've had the, the joy of um, loads of different theories of what will happen next and who does Murdoch like and who does Rebecca like, Rebecca Brooks... And is it going to be Michael Gove or will it be Emma Tucker from the Sunday or is Emma Tucker going to the Wall Street Journal? And been, there have been so, so many interweaving theories. So I'm slightly sad to see the end of that. I'll miss that. It's given us all something to talk about for months. <laughs> you missed the rumour bill. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it, it's, in a sort of practical sense in the newsroom, it won't feel like there's much change at all because Tony's been running the paper for the best part of four months, maybe more. So it's sort of, it's a weird handover in the fact that it's already happened. Wasn't he in charge when um, that story had to be pulled at the behest of um, Boris and Carrie uh, at midnight and then an embarrassing climb down situation? Jim? Jake? <laughs> I, 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 th- I think, I think, I don't know if Jake's final paycheck has cleared yet. So to, 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 uh, to, to say, to save him any hassle, I, I think it's fair to say Tony was, uh, uh, apparently in the editor's seat that day uh, and exactly who made the call on deleting the story. Now, that might be a different uh, a different issue. Yeah, I mean, look, just, I mean, Tony is a, um, he's a proper workaholic. I know that's been reflected in a lot of the coverage that we've seen. Um, you know, he'd jog into work most mornings, chair a, a, an 8am conference in his uh, shorts and t-shirts. Uh, and then he would rapidly, uh, swiftly, Superman style, switch into a suit, and uh, and then be and then he'd be in the editor's chair. So I mean, we're, we're talking about a man dedicated to to the job properly, and I think the paper's politics has been quite hard to pigeonhole under John Witherow, and I wonder whether that will harden under Tony. What what do you guys think? 
I'll say one thing about Tony Gallagher, which is extraordinary. There's not many people who have been um, an editor of a national title more than once, although I suspect that will get easier as newspaper influences wanes. But to have done it three times at three different titles suggests a certain amount of, A, extraordinary, extraordinary ability, but also political flexibility. While papers might be of the right or of the left, they, they rarely agree on everything. So to be able to nuance your way around different titles is, is not... Uh, it's not a small thing. But also Witherow, for the vast majority of his career, was the editor of the Sunday Times, um, which was not under him as politically ambiguous as the Times might have been. So I think he was always pretty much off the right. He, you know, he wasn't in charge of the Times leader line when the Times backed New Labour, for example. Stephen, are you a Times reader? I am a Times reader and I occasionally appear on Times Radio, so um, I'm conflicted, obviously. But my, my big worry is, you know, is all this talk of politics meaning that they're going to go more right wing now they're going to go back to the sun in the sort of brexit crazy days you know when the whole country is absolutely swinging back away from the tories i mean that's that seems to me completely ridiculous that gallagher is going to go more right wing when the country's starting to turn away uh, and that i think is quite interesting you know if if they actually have the sort of pragmatic ability because you know the way people are talking about the tories is that they're going away for a good generation and a half you know, what's the point of having a right-wing leaning paper pushing, pushing, pushing when we're all over them, you know? Yeah. And Jim, who do you think uh, is going to be Tony's deputy? Oh, uh, this is the uh, low-level uh, inside media stakes game that we're all having to play now that Michael Gove hasn't been made editor. Keith Poole, who's at the New York Post at the moment, is one of the favourite rumours that's doing the rounds. Although, frankly, you can seemingly chuck anyone who's ever worked for News UK into the mix and it will go around the WhatsApp groups within five minutes. So, uh, you know, there are certain names whose I'm currently trying to remember the person who runs the weekend section. Do you mean do you mean uh, Nicola Jill? Nicola Jill, thank you, Janine. <laughs> Nicola is a very well respected editor of the paper for sure. I think that's a good shout, actually. A very good shout. Brilliant. Also, she's she's done the Evening Standard and The Observer and The Times. She's just a really good editor. And uh, some have pointed out that there are not many women at the top of The Times. It's, it's extraordinary, isn't it? Maybe you, Jim, have pointed that out. <laughs> so I'm not entirely sure what the relationship between Tony and Nicola is like, but uh, Nicola is certainly a very well-respected force at the paper. We'll leave that discussion uh, about The Times just there. Uh, it's time for our deep dive segment. We're segueing from journalism into true crime. Back in August at the Edinburgh TV Festival, Matt Deegan sat down with ITN's managing director, Ian Rumsey, who shared the key takeaways from his session on navigating duty of care when making true crime television. He began by providing a short history of ITN. ITN has been going, I think now for 66 years providing the news and doing an amazing job and this year our news uh, our newsrooms are kind of on fire really in winning awards we're breaking all kinds of stories mm. all through Partygate and the work that Channel 4 News and Channel 5 News have done all with their own distinctive voices but if ITN has been going for 66 years they're the pensioner <laughs> ITN Productions I think has been going for about 14 years so we're the teenager okay. plucky we're the, young upstart plucky upstart to some annoying <laughs> <laughs> annoying moody teenager to others um, and we have grown enormously in that time this year we will 
have more than a thousand hours um, either TXed um, or commissioned for the first time. That's huge. Um, we do Jeremy Vine for three and a half hours every morning. Mm. Um, that's a vast number of hours. We make programs for all the PSBs in this country and for Netflix. This week we've got a series launched on Netflix called History 101. We're making True Crime for Amazon um, and various others. But uh, yeah, uh, I mean, a range of clients and customers, um, partners, um, but also a kind of expanding list of genres, crime, access, obdocs, travel, the royal family and things like that. And that's the interesting one, isn't it? So historically, a lot of customers who were the public broadcasters in the UK, obviously growth of multi-channel telly in the 90s and noughties, but now the streamers, um, they're becoming big customers too, and maybe people don't necessarily automatically think of Netflix or Amazon as places for, for documentary or news, but actually it's becoming quite a big part of, of what they commission. Yeah, I mean, I think, um, you know, we've just, as I said, we've made a, our first um, show for Amazon, a two-part true crime series called The Confession, which is, um, which, which we're really pleased and proud of um, we're making we're in production for Peacock and Netflix uh, and Paramount Plus um, streamers are a big market not at the expense of the UK terrestrials mm, though mm. that is still you know very much uh, our core business crime's always been popular with consumers hasn't it from magazines uh, TV drama docs and now podcasts as well hugely popular sector but there is a bit of a question isn't there about whether we sensationalize victims or uh, are we doing the right thing when we're covering true crime crime and murder and um, that genre allows us to tap into our sort of deepest darkest recesses of our of our souls and the human spirit but it's why you're going to roller coaster you're going mm. to roller coaster to be scared you know 150 years ago or more people used to pay to watch public hangings yes. you know we've always had a fascination with crime because we're all detectives, psychologists, it could happen to us, we hope it doesn't mm. happen to us, what's happening. There is, I think, a golden age of true crime production at the moment, but with that does come an enormous responsibility, so you're absolutely quite right, that sensationalising or trivialising or creating in some way heroes out of the perpetrators mm. and not telling the victim's story is something that we all have to have front and centre in our mm. minds when making true crime. And we make a lot at ITM Productions. Mm. We make a lot. And, you know, it might not be the most glamorous thing to talk about, but the duty of care and understanding that if you get this right, um, you might get ratings, critical acclaim, whatever. You get this wrong, you haven't just made a bad show. You may well have caused untold damage to victims and their families is something that you absolutely have to bear in mind all the time. You cannot sensationalize stories. You can tell things in the most gripping and compelling mm. way. And actually, as part of our session, Dr. Sarah Payne, whose daughter mm. Sarah died um, uh, 22 years ago, was part of it. What was illuminating about her interview was her obviously her experience but also the fact that she is a true crime fan herself right and the last question to her is what would be your advice to producers and channels mm. and she said keep doing it keep doing it but just do it in the right way it's, a, it's such a challenge isn't it it's, it's uh, and do you think it has changed i think all all participants in television maybe sort of 20 years ago and, and longer the tv industry perhaps didn't care so much about 
what happened to them. I mean, it wasn't so front of mind, whether it, it comes into kind of mental health thinking, um, maybe it's that consumers themselves understand the process more. Uh, yeah, well, I mean, contributors are filmmakers themselves. Mm. I mean, we made, a, we made a documentary on Gabby Petito at the back end of last year, 90% of the footage was footage shot either by her or by the amateur internet sleuths who tried to solve the case. Mm. So we're all filmmakers, but we're all also talking far more about mental health and 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 mm. the and, and the effect that program making could can have on individuals. And we did, weren't talking about that 20 mm. years ago. Mm. I mean, I w one of the sessions I went to on the first day was the footballers with Troy Deeney mm. talking about unscripted TV. And actually, it was very enlightening to hear someone talking about duty of care, which is a big issue and is going to be a big issue. And he was asked, what do you want? And he said, you can have all the psych tests in the world and you can have great duty of care. And I know that you have that and that's all good. But he said, sometimes it's about the producer phoning you up a week later, a month later and just saying, are you okay? Yes. I noticed the Twitter reaction to that was a bit tough. Are you all right? Yeah. And he said, just that is enough sometimes. You know, but that is from the it, horse's it, mouth. Because it is easy, isn't it? I think if you're dropped into the world of television, if it's not your your day job, to feel actually quite alone, like this whole machinery is there around you, and you kind of perform for a bit, and then it's off it's you go. scary. It's it, you know, we all get blasé about it. It's scary if you're working in TV, coming in on your first day. Mm. All these people talking in a language which is a bit foreign to you, and in jargon and synonyms, mm. and <laughs> you know, and all this type of stuff, and it. It's important that it's opened up to people who are working in it, but also storytellers and contributors. You know, there's nothing wrong. There's nothing wrong with us being a bit more transparent and a bit more, you know, truthful and trustworthy. And that's the same in documentary making as it is in news with Esme Wren's session on the Ukraine. Just being just trust and transparency. And of course, in Emily's uh, McTaggart, which was great. That was ITN's Managing Director Ian Rumsey. Tune in to his full interview on our Patreon to hear his highlights from the Edinburgh TV Festival and insights from collaborating with PSBs and streamers on true crime. By subscribing to Patreon, you'll not only access an archive of insight-rich interviews with media experts, but you'll also support the team that makes this show. Go to patreon.com slash mediapodcast. It's time for a short break, but don't go anywhere. We'll be back after this with a special podcast-themed media quiz. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Wow. Nice. Yeah. 
What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bombas socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. And I'm back with our three marvellous guests, Janine Gibson, Jim Waterson and Stephen D. Wright. In other news relating to a change of guard, as we enter the reign of King Charles III, there seems to be a shift in media relations with the royal family. Jim, your story, talk us through it. Well, the story is that there's a lot of backroom deals between broadcasters and the monarchy and people don't seem to like to report on them. So I've had a bit of fun reporting on them. And it turns out there's a few things that went on. There was a, a live WhatsApp group involving some of the executives at the BBC Sky and ITV in which throughout the some of the proceedings, and it's mainly the ones that are happening inside buildings, I won't bore you with the reasons, but the ones that are happening inside buildings, the royal family literally had a veto where they could retrospectively say, don't show that bit again. That's why you didn't see footage of people lunging at the coffin or things like that or certain other moments from the funeral. Now, perhaps more problematically, they've also got to agree 60 minutes of footage from the many hours of recording that they can use sort of forever for archive clips, for news reports in the future, for anything. And all of this is slightly uneasy because it's it's not necessarily that anything particularly damning is being hidden away, but it is definitely the case that the royal family have the option to maybe nudge things in a certain direction if they want to. I just find it interesting that this is still still going on, that we all know that deals are made for access, but we rarely actually get to see them, and they're rarely quite as stark as this. It strikes me as slightly bizarre because these are historic documents and they've already been shown on television. Why would they want to expunge them from the public record? If you perhaps didn't want an endless clip of uh, King Charles getting angry at a pen, for instance, or <laughs> things that uh, one of the clips that was taken out of circulation from Westminster Hall involved Mike Tyndall, who's sort of an extended royal family member, checking his watch while he was watching the Queen's coffin. You know, things like that, minor things. Now, there were some that were removed because the royal family argued they were intruding on grief. That's maybe a different category. But it's almost allowing them to define where the line is rather than the broadcasters taking the complaint into account and coming to their own conclusion. Stephen, are you concerned that this is censorship? Very concerned. I mean, and it is censorship. There's no way you're dressing this up. It's nothing to do with the royal family being concerned about grief or anything else. This is power. And this is people stopping, trying to sort of close the door after the, the, the stable door after the horse has bolted. I mean, all these kind of Prince Charles angry at his pen, you know, that's a meme that's going to live forever and it's it's on social media and it can never be stopped. So this it's, it's a really sort of heavy-handed and slightly kind of uh, oppressive uh, method of trying to force the TV networks into line. And, of course, the networks will all submit because they always do to the royal family. But, no, I thought this was a really sort of uh, scary and slightly bizarre story because it's nonsensical from a sort of everyone's seen it already, but it's really it's sort of depressing that the royal family are trying to clamp down on public record. I mean, you know, this is history. We have all seen it. No one's going to watch another 12 hours of it. But this idea that, you know, you can only watch this, you can only see that, we're going to veto this, we're going to veto that, is, is nonsense and, and a really bad signal at this new 
you know, the new monarch uh, reign of modernity or whatever, to go back to a very old fashion sort of the, you know, the royal family knows best. No, they don't. Janine, hasn't this sort of delicate dance between access and privacy sort of ever been thus in the relationship between the press and the royal family? Well, yes, of course. And, and, and everyone is right that you know, effectively, depending on the relative power of the media organisation and, and the palace, the palace has always been able to demand some sort of full lid or censorship. But was always, you know, it was always established that they would, there was a petition in, in that sense that they had to ask. And as far as I'm aware, following the death of George VI, the newspaper has never been forcibly restrained from publishing news about the royals. The fact that we've dispensed with the, the pretense that they're asking nicely is really significant because I very much doubt that BBC feels strong enough to refuse a royal request not to show a clip of Mike Tyndall blowing his nose or whatever. But the fact that they're not bothering to ask anymore is, is as Stephen says, a, a game changer. And I think everyone should refuse to comply just on principle. It doesn't matter whether you're actually going to show that clip again. You just have to refuse to comply. It is a really important principle. I would have also thought it's absolutely impossible to impose. So it's a reasonably good fight for the media to have as one in a united way. I assume that's what they're going to do. I hope very much that they do. Yes, Jim, you've been following this. I mean, where where do you think it's going to go? Well, I think that I think this is sort of a, a battle more about the future and for Charles III's coronation and things like that. That the broadcasters were very reluctant to rock the boat when it came to the Queen's funeral. And as far as I have heard, the final agreement on the terms of the broadcast was signed about fifteen minutes before the the funeral began. I mean, I think it was all amazingly for something that being planned that long. The actual detail was slightly foisted on everyone at the last minute. Uh, so, you know, the, the terms under which all the footage could be used was really very late in the day. I almost get the feeling that, th- that this was slightly overlooked and then the royals took uh, advantage of that void to say, well, these are the terms, either you're covering this event or you're not. And the broadcasters went, ooh, I think we probably need to have this. So went along with it. But it's whether or not they're willing, and especially now we've been able to shine a bit of a light on it at The Guardian, whether it's uh, something they'd feel willing to agree to for the coronation and other future royal events. Maybe Queen Elizabeth II's funeral was seen as sort of the last of an old era and maybe we can move into a new one. You know what The Guardian should do, Jim? The The Guardian should do a compilation of all the clips that the palace has demanded never be seen again and publish them (laughs) on public interest grounds because they're newsworthy and then they couldn't be taken down. Janine, well, it's, it, it was, it was, it's always nice to work for you. But... <laughs> I, I feel like we're, we're seeing live commissioning going on. They rarely, very rarely behead journalists <laughs> But I mean, now. That sort of, does it really matter when we know that there's probably going to be bootleg versions of the funeral available on YouTube until the end of time? Maybe it doesn't, but I think it, it is in, as much as as much as we sort of like to go on about the idea that we've all moved on to streaming everything off YouTube and we don't care about the the mainstream media, their inability to package up something, to put a punchy clip prominently in front of people, and also to rely on the idea that those streams on YouTube last forever is increasingly optimistic. That's true. And we've not I mean, we've not heard from Buckingham Palace on this matter, which is, I guess, no great surprise. But what's their position, Jim? Have you spoken to them? No, they don't seem to be returning my calls. No, they just seem to be ignoring me. You shock me. You shock me. <laughs> it would be really interesting to see how this plays out for the coronation and whether there actually may be a bit more of a, a sort of a more thoughtful approach to this so the broadcasters don't get caught in this situation again. 
I would hope that the broadcasters uh, uh, have a bit more backbone next time around and also maybe planning in advance and uh, setting the rules well in advance of the event is better than trying to come to deals very last minute. Um, and we can watch it all on The Crown one day, can't we? Is that is that right? Will you be doing that, Stephen? Well, The Crown's already said they're going to stop before the Meghan Markle sort of debacle. I know. So, I'm um, being facetious. So, <laughs> well, you know what I mean? But, but they're already worried about The Crown starting on the 5th of November, you know, because they're worried that it's going to start putting people off Charles as he becomes king. So, you know, you can't rewrite history, but they're trying to. Yes. Yes. To. Well, it, it seems you as the, the, the Crown sort of encroaches into closer yeah. history it becomes more awkward for the royal family, doesn't it? And it feels oh, like yeah. this series is probably going to be... There was there was controversy last time where the government tried to get Netflix to put on warnings about it being a work of mm. fiction. It feels like that might go up a gear this time round. I mean, competing versions of history that flatter the monarch is the foundation yeah. of quite a lot of English literature. And you could commission your own version. <laughs> I mean, the whole thing's ridiculous. You just have to look at the way people talk about the monarchy and... and... Comedians talk about the monarchy, the papers talk about the monarchy, but TV is still in a deferential cap-in-hand position or, or is being forced to be. It's, it's completely out of step. This whole, this whole thing is just nonsense. So we have just enough time for the media quiz uh, today. Friday, September 30th is International Podcast Day. We'd be remiss not to celebrate. So this quiz will test whether or not our guests have been paying attention to the latest round of shine new podcasts announced this week. I'll give you a clue about a new podcast. You need to buzz in with your name if you know the answer. So Janine, you will say. Uh, Janine? Stephen, <laughs> what are you going to say? I'll say Stephen. Uh, Jim? I'll say Stephen. Uh, I guess I'd say Jim. <laughs> That's not the quiz, by the way. You all sounded hesitant. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Off we go. So, uh, question one. Who is starting a new podcast entitled Beeb Watch? Oh, Stephen. This is Roger Bolton, who's, who's using his sort of, I've been liberated from the BBC to finally tell the truth about the BBC, and I can finally speak up about things and all the rest of it, and... It's one of these new sort of, now we're not no longer at the BBC, we can tell the truth kind of uh, elements because a lot of big names are leaving the BBC now. Yes, he's found his voice. You're right, it is right. It's right. Yeah. After being booted by feedback, he's now launched his own independent audience sort of feedback <laughs> uh, mm. BBC podcast. He says, in the end, the BBC is too important to be left to those who run it or an unsympathetic government which is strangling it financially. I will hear from critics and supporters and no views will be censored unless they're about the royal family. We don't, we don't know. Um, <laughs> let's move on to the second question. It's it's one nil nil <laughs> to Steve. <laughs> question two. Which female podcasting duo will depart the BBC for Times Radio next month? Janine, it's um, uh, Jane and Fee um, are taking uh, their podcast to Times Radio. That's right. And I yes. hope they uh, uh, get lots and lots more airtime because they're brilliant and they were rather cruelly treated by Radio 4. And that is my editorialising. <laughs> That's true. Yes. Their new Times Radio podcast and live weekday show launches on October the 10th. But fortunately, which is their BBC podcast, that will continue to air until the end of 2022, which is a sort of unusual arrangement, I would suggest. 
What do you reckon, Jim? The BBC's hemorrhaging podcasting talent, isn't it? You know, if you leave the BBC, you can claim that they censored you and build a career off the back of that. But equally, if you've got a, B- <laughs> a successful podcast at the BBC, you can leave the BBC and get, get a load of money elsewhere. Uh, the BBC seems to be unable to retain people. And at the moment that they actually build something up into a podcast people want to listen to, they can immediately take their listeners off with them. Seems to be a bit of a structural problem for them. Yes. But you had an interesting angle on this a couple of weeks ago when you suggested that the BBC is going to hide earnings for audio within BBC Studios, which is the commercial arm. I'd even forgotten I'd written that story. Yes, that was a fantastic story. Yes, yes. Uh, it was. A, uh, uh, you're right, I did. I, I revealed exclusively on The Guardian that, that, no, that the BBC, in the same way it can hide the salaries of Strictly Come Dancing presenters, it will be probably soon able to do similar for its audio people because, frankly, it's struggling to pay people the same amount that it can get in the commercial sector. We've got one all between Janine and Stephen. Uh, Jim, you're trailing, but maybe you can pull it back in this, this final question. Uh, so whose money-themed podcast is being upgraded from a live radio pod to a fresh new show? Jim, um, it's Martin <laughs> yes. Lewis, the money-saving <laughs> yeah. expert, and I don't understand at all what the upgrade means. All I know is that he's the one man you can put in any headline and get more clicks on than any man in Britain. So uh, mm. from my internet publishing world, he is the, the sort of number one man and he is the one person that ITV would love to present Good Morning Britain but probably can't afford. Mm. Yes. Is, uh, here's a question. Is he most, is he Britain's most trusted man? It used to be Alan Titchmarsh, but has, uh, has Martin Lewis claimed that crown? Yes, I definitely have. I'm enjoying Martin Lewis's revolutionary phase where he just sort of uh, drops the you can save 13 pence with a credit card and goes full take down the government. It's quite enjoyable. <laughs> but yes, you're, you're right, John. As the cost of living crisis unfolds, the money saving expert is being given his own new weekly podcast to answer listener questions offering tips and explaining the big issues. So I think that makes all three of you the winner, which is a historic three-way tie in the in the media podcast quiz history. So well done to you all. That's all we've got time for today. Uh, my thanks to Janine Gibson, Jim Watson and Stephen D. Wright. Where can our listeners find each of you and keep up with your work over the coming weeks and months? If you want to read uh, my stuff, it's on The Guardian and you can follow me on Twitter at Jim Watson. Please read uh, the FT's marvellous coverage of the current financial crisis at ft.com. And I'm at Janine Gibson on Twitter. God, I have no idea what to say because I'm hardly a, 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 a more of a re- media recluse these days. But you can still hear me occasionally on the Times Radio, writing in Broadcast Magazine or on social media. If you enjoyed this episode, show us you mean it by doing any or all of these things. Why not tell your colleagues about the show on Twitter or LinkedIn and become a patron of the show at patreon.com slash mediapod. You'll be able to access a archive of deep dive interviews with media experts. That's patreon.com slash mediapod. And of course, follow us to hear new episodes when they drop on your podcast app of choice. Subscribe at podfollow.com slash the media podcast. My name's Jake Cantor. The producer was Phoebe Adler-Ryan with support from Matt Hill, and it was a Rethink Audio production. We'll see you next week. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. 
Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.